Melissa here. I am a huge fan, of course. I did want to know, like, what the deal is with Leo. Like, what does he do? Like, I feel so confused by his time because he studies all the time. He watches every sport imaginable. And so I've just decided maybe the podcast is curated for him in particular so that he doesn't actually have to do anything except for what he loves to do and then talk about it. I have no idea how he has the time. Stephanie, I'm so happy about the baby. I totally knew you were pregnant. I knew it. I got pregnant as well during the pandemic, and it was the greatest thing because you didn't have to tell anybody. And then one day you just stood up. And I don't know if that really happened, but I'm just saying, I knew you were pregnant the second you guys were like, you were like, you guys haven't seen me in a while. Anyways, love you. Thanks so much. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined by my regular co-host, tablet editor-at-large, Leah Leibovitz. As regular as they get. <laughs> and our special elite SWAT team guest host, our tablet colleague, Sam Hacker. Hi, Sam. Hey, long-time listener, first-time host. <laughs> Before we get deeper into this, do we want to talk about your prior appearance on Unorthodox, which I confess I had forgotten about, but you remembered and, and reminded us of? My appearance is a strong word because I definitely just subscribed to the podcast and then four years later remembered that you called me Girl Sam because I was like, hook a girl up. And you said, like, girl Sam is hooked up. It was very cute. All of my coworkers at The Moth were listening, and they felt very uh, excited that I had my name on a podcast that was not The Moth. This is when you subscribed to our newsletter. Like, in the subscription note, you said, hook a girl yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was like, hook I a girl see. up. I see. So basically, you're running the long game because you were really into, into Unorthodox years ago when you were working at a little organization that some people have heard of called The Moth. Then you left The Moth. You were in the wilderness. You came here. Somebody goes on maternity leave. Whether or not you had anything to do with that, I don't know. I was about to say, this is this is like the Joan Rivers story, only with a happy ending, because like you work for years trying to host the late night show, right? And, and here you are. If Stephanie doesn't come back from maternity leave, you know who to blame. <laughs> this is getting very dark, very fast. It's getting very single white femaleing here. All that stands between you and a regular hosted gig on your favorite podcast is, is one small baby named Edith I Isadora I did not Cohen. sleep last night because I was so nervous about this. So I definitely do not want to make this a regular gig because I do All like right. sleeping. Well, well, no, we are super happy to have you. And, um, you know, and it's good to have the gang two thirds together with a, an additional, you know, special one third. Joining all three of us this week are two guests, uh, two Jews. The first is young adult author E. Lockhart, who has created a new Jewish teen hero for DC Comics. And then actor and awesome Jew, Jonathan Lipnicki. You know him as the adorable little Moppet in Jerry Maguire, but he's so much more. And he's joining us as our second Jew of the week. But before that, I have a story I want to tell. Could I take it down? Could I take the, the temperature down for a moment? It would not be Tishrei if you didn't have a story to tell, Mark. That's right. So as readers of Tablet know, and anyone who follows the news, there is a lot of controversy about COVID, about whether or not to require vaccines, proof of vaccines, who gets to go to services, who doesn't. And of course, it's a very painful thing. Um, it's something that, you know, Liel has written about, other people have written about it. And I was pretty chill on the whole question. My, my own congregation had reached a kind of compromise that I felt was good. And I, was, I just wasn't thinking about it. I just wasn't dialing into the discussion at all. And I want to tell one story that I don't think comes down on any side of any debate is just a story that I think is beautiful and is worth bearing in mind, which is I was at an event at a synagogue, not going to say which synagogue for reasons that will become obvious. Don't want to give up the identity of a person I'm about to quote. But let's just say that sometime during the past couple of weeks when, when the gates of repentance are open, big time for the Jewish year, 
I'm at an event in a spiritual space and we're sitting around in a group and a clergy person says, let's all talk about a time in the last year when you were sad, something you remember that was difficult that you had to come through and then talk about a time when you realized you'd come through it. And we're all going around and I'm saying, oh, it was so hard, you know, pulling my children out of school or it was hard doing this. And someone else says I couldn't, you know, visit so-and-so when she was sick. And I mean, all the typical stuff that I think we've all become used to. And then a person who has some profound adult learning differences, I will say, and somebody who is meaningful to the Jewish community for showing up, for doing labor, being present, making minions, but is not somebody who's going to have the capabilities of reading Torah, let's just say. But, but somebody who comes to shul a lot to be there and because it's a special place and a place where they're accepted, says, oh, I, I, I can tell you what was hard. It was the day in March of 2020 when I came for Minion and the building was closed. And I, I, I had to go home and then I couldn't go back for a long time. And it just like shattered my world, right? It just was, I mean, th- we all have, we've all had our pandemic problems and we all had, you know, legitimate things to say about ways in which this was tough for us. But here was someone who remembered the date that they came to this building where they get to be accepted and have a purpose and and be there as a fellow Jew. And it's the center of this person's life. And they remembered the date when they showed up and the building was locked. And then they said, but then a few months ago, I came and the door was open. It just sort of, for me, cut through Like whatever your debates are and whatever your positions are on masking, vaccination, children, not children, this was someone, and this is somebody who I think is probably Zoom capable, I think has the abilities to be on Zoom. But what this person needed was to go to the building, to this building and find the door open. And they knew the date when it stopped being open and the date when it opened again. You know, as somebody who's just a big believer of in-person congregation when possible, however we can get to that possibility, however we feel it's safe, it's just important to remember what is at stake for some members of our community whom we don't always hear from and who don't always speak up. And that that was sometime, it was between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur at a very small event at a congregation that was not necessarily mine. That's what I'm going to remember from the beginning of 5782. Amen, Salah. And let us, let us remember that every day uh, because it is such a profound, essential understanding of why it is that we do all these things that we do. It is because at, at its core, that is, that is the correct emotional response. It is the essential place. It is the essence of our existence. It's just important to remember what is at stake. And we cannot be cavalier or blithe about this and... Um, yeah, I'm just going to keep thinking about that. So that was my I, honest. I don't mean to take us down. I don't mean so to yeah, go. So yeah, Sam, top that. What like, uh, <laughs> what deeply insightful experience did you have? Hmm? I'll take it up or take it up. Please take it or up. Or a Please. totally different direction, which is to say that. So I'm in Woodstock, New York, with my fiance in a little one bedroom cabin for a couple of weeks. So we spent Yom Kippur totally alone um, with each other, and I realized while communicating with family and friends. You realize this is the person I'm going to be with forever and ever and ever. I'm sorry to interrupt the story, but like what a perfect plot for a horror movie. I know. Two Jews alone in the woods in a cabin and they're hungry. (laughs) Unspeakable violence. Yeah, a lot of things could have gone wrong. But hilariously, the thing that I realized the most is that when you take all of the in-person stuff away, 
things can get like hilariously passive aggressive, like Yom Kippur, like even someone on a work call was like, if I have harmed you, X, Y, Z, like, but it's like when you don't have that, like in person, like, or if you can't see someone's face, like, yeah. and I, it actually brought me back to a, a very quick story I will tell, which is that a couple years ago, I had a friend do some kind of like terrible things in the beginning of the year. And then we didn't talk for a couple months. And then she texted me and said, I've really missed being friends in the past few months. And I'm taking Yom Kippur to apologize for any wrongs I've committed or feelings I may have hurt. It's never been my motive to offend or harm anyone. I responded saying like, thanks, but I don't really want to respond here. Texting is hard. Things get lost like in it, but I'd love to talk about this in person. Had read receipts on, read the text, haven't talked to that person for years. Like they just didn't respond. Wait, wait, wait. So you basically wrote back. It was like, let's do this over lunch in person and hug it out. And she, she just did. She felt like she'd done her job. She'd sent her text message basically. And that's the thing where it's like, I think when you have this sort of like empty hole that you can speak into and be like, I'm sorry if I hurt, if I hurt you. I yeah, love I the like, I'm, if I may have. In the eventuality of having hurt you, <laughs> terms and restrictions may apply. I like the Yom Kippur in the woods. Sid and I, the, I don't know if I've ever told this story. Sid and I got engaged on Yom Kippur. Oh. We were really, really hungry. You know, we were in Woodstock. You were starving. Vermont. You're like, I'm we sorry for starving. I might have said when I was hungry, including maybe proposing to you. I was about to say, in, instead of saying, I'm sorry, you said, will you? Look, will you? <laughs> I'm really, you know, I'm sorry. I'm fine. Fine. I'll marry you. No, we went right. to services up in Woodstock, Vermont. Then we took a walk in the woods, <laughs> in the woods, your Woodstock. And that's where I proposed. And then we went to Neila. And then we were looking for restaurants somewhere in rural Vermont. And we ended up buying potato chips and just scarfing them down. Can I interrupt and ask a question, Mark? Yes, producer Josh. And all of you actually, is, is Jewish holidays and wedding proposals a thing? No. I got engaged to my wife the first night of Rosh Hashanah, driving back from her aunt and uncle's house because I was like, oh, I should marry this woman. And that was it. Like, is that a thing? Do, do we all do that? It's the most Jewish thing Mark has ever said, because they, they say that was done ancient times on Yom Kippur afternoon was that the men and women would get together. The young unmarried men and women would get together and talk and they'd start splitting off. They were never worried about anything bad happening on Yom Kippur. So it was the perfect time. Absolutely. Not only that, but but the Talmud tells us that the two happiest days on the Jewish calendar are Tubav, the love fest, and Yom Kippur. So they're, they're connected. Really? This is a, yeah. This I have is no a idea. Eat on Yom Kippur, marry on Tubav. You know, that classic <laughs> trope. Pro producer Sarah with the deep knowledge, with the deep, I had no idea. So um, Sam, before we move on to news of the Jews, you have other big news, right? You're, you're changing citizenships. You're leaving us. What's going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm out. Uh, I just finished the very long, year-long process of applying to get my Austrian citizenship. They offer a, a really great offering by the Austrian government. A really great relocation plan, yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You like to go to the East? <laughs> my dad's parents were Austrian refugees. My great-grandparents were in Majdanek. And they now, the Austrian government offers citizenship to descendants of victims of Nazi persecution. So... You know, I figured having like an extra passport couldn't hurt. This is so great. I imagine, by the way, that the citizenship test, like, you know, they have here this like complicated citizenship, like the citizenship in Austria, I imagine, is just like one question. Name your favorite mid-century Austrian painter. <laughs> Answer, Adolf. Second question. What happened between 1939 and 1945? Answer, nothing. Nothing, nothing. of any interest. Nothing at all. Welcome to Austria. Hey, Mark and Liel, it's Stephanie here with Baby Edith. We just wanted to say hi and let you know that we miss you. 
Um, Edith is just over two months and she's the cutest little girl and the coolest girl in the whole world. And we just wanted to say hi and thank you for all of the well wishes and the gifts to from you guys and the whole unorthodox team and the J crew and to let you know that thank you notes will be coming, but we're a little bit behind on them. Um, I also, you know, I'm not just calling to say thank you. I'm calling to say sorry. And that's because I listened to the apology episode and it was so, so, so good. I loved all the segments. Um, and I just wanted to say, I'm sorry that I had nothing to do with it and I didn't help at all. And um, I hope you accept my apology. And I know I'm a little bit late. I know the holiday <laughs> has passed, but I figured you would grant me a dispensation. Um, I think I have a good excuse for both being late with my apology and for not being part of the episode. Um, but I'm here with Edith and we are doing really, really well. And we're excited to get back to you guys um, in about a month. And until then, I wanted to let you know Edith Isadora Cohen has an official Hebrew name. In Hebrew, she will be known as Edith Dora, and it has an amazing meaning um, in Hebrew, but also for us, Edith means good and blessed and fertile earth, and is, of course, the very real translation of, of Edith. And Dora, which is, um, you know, has its root in door, like generation, but it's also my, it was my grandmother's name. Um, and so for me, that really symbolizes the, you know, generation to generation um, and just sort of the the way in which we are, you know, <laughs> commanded to remember um, both our ancestors and what they've been through. And so we are here with a little Adit Dora and she is so excited to meet you all in person and I'll see you guys soon. Bye. News of the So that's actually the big news of the Jews this week. You're on the path to Austrian citizenship. You were marooned with your fiance in the woods. But part of our charge is to present the listeners with other news of the Jews. And so just a few things this week. The first one that I want to talk about is this is, I don't know if you guys paid attention to this, but a few weeks ago, again, we're all in like Yom Kippur time as well as COVID time. And I think it was about a few weeks ago, there was this petition signed by employees at the State Department asking that their colleague be fired. This is this fellow, Fritz Bregren, who in his downtime runs a blog on which he writes things like, Jesus Christ came to save the whole world from the Jews, the founders of the original Antichrist religion. They who are the seed of the serpent, the brood of vipers, they murdered Jesus Christ. How then can they be God's chosen? And, you know, periodically, we are in this moment now where people get fired for stuff they write not on <laughs> no, company time. No, not, not Fritz Bregren. <laughs> not that nice who, by guy. The way, who, by the way, will be your assigned Austrian Sherpa uh, to, right. to, you know. He's the one who's personally walking you over the border, Sam. Right. And he looks like James Bond villain number three. Yeah. <laughs> But I actually think this is a really interesting question. I actually have a fairly doctrinaire fundamentalist belief that people should never, ever, ever be fired for stuff they do out of the workplace. This is a, a belief that comes out of my belief in labor rights and in unionism and in the sense that the company shouldn't be allowed to spy on us in our downtime. And this 
cuts left and right politically. I don't care where you work. Right. If in your off time, you wish to call for the extermination of the Jews. That's on yeah. Your, you wish to call your time. Well, no, I'm with you in this one. If in your downtime, you wish just to put protest. that on your resume at the bottom. Of, right. Just put it on the it. resume. Skills, Microsoft Excel, and genocide. <laughs> <laughs> the guy's name was Fritz Bregren. They knew what they right. were getting into. I mean, but, come on. But if in your downtime you want to protest outside the Planned Parenthood, that should be your prerogative. If in your downtime you want to help escort people past the protesters at Planned Parenthood, that should be your pro- Like People should get to be, to have private lives. And yes, he was stupid about it in that he put his private life up on WordPress or whatever, bloggers, blogspot.com. But I don't know, is anyone with me here that like as long as he's doing his job at state? So first of all, I'm, I'm with you on the principle, even though obviously freaking troubling. Uh, but- I'm also with you on the sort of emotional valence of it. You know, I listened to this radio show that I love and they were talking about some comedian who is a friend of all of them just going off the deep rails with like COVID conspiracy theories and like, you know, little green men type of stuff. And they said, you know, the really sad thing about it, one of the guys said, really sad thing about it. It's like, we used to hang out all the time. I've known this guy for 20 years. I had no idea what his political feelings were, nor did it particularly matter because no one was actually required to be like so performative and like declare everything online all the time. You could hold totally bizarre private beliefs and you could still have like meaningful relationships with other humans. We really freaking lost that. I mean, yeah, Mm -hmm. you don't have to go ahead and call for the extermination of the Jews. (laughs) Online, there are other ways. But still, you know, I I miss the days in which you could come to someone and like be a complete blank slate and just have a relationship based on who they are and not like, oh, you tweeted about Beyonce. Like, I I don't need that. I mean, the thing I'd be curious about, because this is in his blog, like did the blog start as like a blog about his other interests? And like, did it just get dialed up over the years (laughs) to the point that he's talking about the brood of vipers? Like, did this used to be like, oh, I went with my family to Yellowstone, here are photos, and then, you know, it just, like that's, I, so I don't know. Yeah, originally it was it was a challah baking blog, and somehow it just deteriorated. He's an American male. It was obviously originally about fantasy football, and then it moved into challah baking. Right, of course. And then when he started baking challah, he met the Jews, and he realized we had to be exterminated. So it's just a natural progression. Just with what Liel was saying was just like, when we have interactions with human people in real life, things are just better. So it's like, I, I don't know. I don't know how this blog has started, but it's like, I'm sure he wasn't screaming that Jews are broods of vipers when he was like out being a human in 1994 before like, well, I don't know. I just think the internet is kind of the devil, which is a good thing that I work for an internet publication and podcast. So Sam, I, I can't tell you how strongly I, I agree with this. So Mark, you mentioned before that I did write a piece about the importance of attending holidays within, you know, understandable safety and well-being measures. But the piece made a lot of people very angry. And the one thing that really struck me, I don't want to say hurt me because, you know, we're all adults, we're all professionals. This is what we do for a living. We've been around the block a few times, but really puzzled me. It was the notion of how many people who I know personally, you know, people who've been to my house, people who I've, you know, had drinks and dinners and lunches with, read this piece, disliked it immensely. And instead of sending me a note, saying, hey, man, you know, that was vile. That was dumb. That was crazy. You missed a point. Like, how could you write this? Like, why didn't you, you know, consider X, Y, Z or or something along these lines? Just immediately either took to Twitter to say, oh, Liel, you know, just despicable performance from da 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 or just, you know, posted these huge, long public screeds about it. And this is like a week before Yom Kippur. It, it, it seems to me that even for all of our obsession with communication tools, the inability to just, you know, reach out and say, 
hey, man, like, what's up with that? The expectation that everything will just be this shitty spectacle of condemnation and reproach and rage, it, that's the most post-human and anti-Jewish thing in the world as far as I'm concerned. There's nothing more goyisha than this. There you have it. Not that I'm accusing the goyim here <laughs> of being rageful and performative. I'm saying in our tradition, this doesn't pass. Which is the whole point of Yom Kippur. The, the funny thing is whenever you write something that angers a lot of people, Liel, um, about a dozen of them write to me. I know. And, um, and what Can I, I tell you how bad is, I feel? I probably waste like 30 hours of your time a month. Just some people like, how can you be friends? From now on, <laughs> my only reply to them is, do you think I'm, I'm going to write back and say just one sentence. Thank you for your response to Liel's, to Liel Leibowitz's piece in Tablet <laughs> Magazine. Question. Do you think that I'm Liel's boss or his secretary? Right. <laughs> like, am I above you or beneath you? Because those are the only people who get this kind of mail. By the way, which <laughs> so, one of these two possibilities troubles you more? I, I don't know. I <laughs> honestly don't know if I'd horrible. rather be your boss or your typist. I just don't know. Just tell them to, to email info at tabletmag.com and say, Correct. hey, I'm Mark Oppenheimer's friend, but this this is in response to Liel. So yeah. that you, I, I you can know, go through it. I read the info account, so. You know who is getting even more heat than than even me these days? Who's that? You, you, you know what Jew is more reviled uh, <laughs> around the world than even myself? That would be the unimprovably named Zvulun Simantov. Uh, his full name, of course, is Zvulun Simantov. Umazotov. He is 62 years old. He is the last Jew of Afghanistan. Now, here's the thing. He is despicable as he is a get refuser. He refuses to grant his wife who lives in Israel, his estranged wife, I should say, the get, the, the Jewish you know, bill of divorce. divorce yeah. And so when uh, Afghanistan fell to the Taliban, he said, I would rather live here with them <laughs> than have to go anywhere where I could be pressured into giving this poor woman her freedom, which is the ultimate dick move of all time. Uh, so he finally came to his senses <laughs> of sort uh, and he left his home in the city of Herat. And now I, I hope he has a very difficult and miserable life until until he gives this poor woman her freedom. Should this be a new like reality TV show? Would you rather give a get or ex <laughs> like right. the most extreme uh, circumstances or give a get? And that is so very real because get refusers, men who are, who are trying to flee the responsibility to give their wives divorces in observant Judaism, they do often flee the community, right? They'll often go to another place where people mm -hmm. don't know about their background or where the local rabbi can't impose some sort of, you know, ostracism ban on them. So, you know, how, right, how far would you be willing how to- How far travel? would you go? Would you go, to, would you live under the Taliban? Would you, would you go to the midst of the Syrian civil war? By the way, what a great remake of like Zero Dark Thirty. Like imagine like <laughs> SEAL Team 6, 4.30 in the morning, <laughs> bursting into Zvulun Simantov's home in Afghanistan. Be like, dude, we already killed Osama bin Laden. We're really here to get you to sign this divorce. <laughs> yeah, get refusers are pretty much the lowest form of life. So if you listen to the show, by now you might have noticed I'm, you know, what some people might call a nerd. So imagine this. One day you learn that there is a new comic book in the DC Comics universe that the new superheroine is Jewish, that her superpower is talking to dogs, already a huge win as far as I'm concerned, and that her dog sidekick is a great Dane named Leibowitz. 
this is the incredible premise for the new graphic novel, Whistle, a new Gotham hero. And I had the great pleasure of sitting down with its writer, celebrated young adult novelist, E. Lockhart. It is our pleasure to have with us today, E. Lockhart. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So listen, this is all about me, obviously. This is, this is a show that exists to satisfy my, <laughs> my urges. I can't imagine a comic book that is more perfectly genetically tailored and engineered to satisfy every single one of my intellectual, emotional, artistic. Like, I read this thing, and as I was reading it, not only was I absolutely loving it, but I thought to myself, is, is this real? I mean, is the dog character really named Leibowitz? This is so fantastic. I can't tell you how much I loved it. And so I want to nerd out on so many levels. Let's begin. You are a celebrated young adult author. Take me to the moment in which you get this call. It's DC Comics. And they say, hey, you know, would you like to uh, invent a new amazing superhero for the DC universe? Yeah, that's basically what happened. I was at this thing called Library Con a sort of pre-conference for the big American Library Association conference. And the pre-conference is for librarians and creators of more pop culture related things. So young adult literature, graphic novels, comic books, a couple editors from DC came up to me and they had read a book of mine, a young adult novel called Genuine Fraud, which is a thriller, a very much an anti-hero story. And it has a lot of comic book material in it. And mostly action movie comic book stuff, but it, you know, has a lot of coded references to the Hulk and Deadpool and a bunch of stuff like that. So they said, we read your book. We would love to have you pitch our new line. We're doing this really cool young adult graphic novel line using our heroes and writing about them when they're teenagers. So I sent them a couple pitches and they rejected them. By the way, I'm, I'm, I'm dying just to imagine these pitches. Like, it's Batman, but Bruce Wayne is in the yeshiva in Israel for a year. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't required that I write a Jewish story. But I did start with Harley Quinn, who is DC's most famous Jewish character. She's a villain and she was invented based on comedian Arlene Sorkin's performance in the TV show that originated the character of Harley Quinn. So Arlene Sorkin had this like hilarious, very Jewish persona and style of humor. And the character of Harley originated with Sorkin's performance. So I started with a pitch for Harley Quinn, who I've always loved for a lot of reasons. And they said no. And then I did a Batman pitch and they said no. And I was like, hmm, I think I'm maybe not a good fit for you. I was just kind of done with that whole idea of writing for DC. And I was out in LA, which is where their offices are located. And they convinced me that I should come in and meet with them face to face. So I went in and then I just had a massive geek out moment because you go into their offices and it's like, there's the like Henry Cavill Superman costume and the Ben Affleck Batman costume, or maybe it's George Clooney. I can't remember whose Batman costume it is, but it's very exciting. And they have memorabilia everywhere. And they gave me a tour of the DC Comics archives. And they did that before the meeting. And so this wonderful librarian archivist man took me into this room full of original art and first edition comics and movie memorabilia. And he was like, what characters do you like? I'll show you all the things. And he told me a bunch of DC history. And suddenly 
I went from being like, oh, this is a corporation that I don't really think vibes on me to like, oh, these characters have meant so much to so many people for so many years all over the globe. I just completely wanted to be part of it. And then I went into this meeting thinking they were going to say, well, if you could just pitch us another character that already exists. And they said, well, maybe you're not as well suited to pitching characters that already exist. Do you want to invent a superhero for us? And I was like, oh, yes, please. Thank you. And they were like, if you'd like to put her in Gotham City, you can. Because they could tell, obviously, that I was very into Gotham. And so I got to create this Jewish teenage activist. The book is called Whistle, A New Gotham City Hero. And she fights Batman villains. And so I, mean, I got to use these incredible Batman rogues. Let's let's talk about her for, for a second. Her name is Willow Zimmerman. She's, I believe, what, 16? So, you know, of, of all the choices that I could imagine someone making when imagining a brand new heroine to sort of plant into Gotham City, a very opinionated, political, deli-loving, animal-embracing, Jewish, loquacious, voraciously reading teenager. That somehow isn't the first choice that comes to mind. I mean, essentially, you invented not just this heroine, but an entire basically Lower East Side for Gotham City, right? I did. I got to invent a new neighborhood and have her be like the protector. You know, she's your friendly neighborhood superhero. She's protecting her particular neighborhood, which is, yeah, basically New York's Lower East Side with all of its Jewish history. And, you know, it's now a mixed neighborhood for all different kinds of people, but it has the same history that the Lower East Side does. Why make that choice? Why why go so Jewy, so brainy? So I mean, I was raised in a mixed religion family. My dad is Jewish and my mother is in a new age religion. So I think because of that split and also because both my parents were members of religions that were not the dominant culture in Seattle or Cambridge, the two places that I grew up, I was just conscious of religion as part of somebody's identity. And even though I'm not a particularly religious person, my heritage and my family's religious identity has always been super important to me. My dad lived on the Lower East Side when I was growing up and I spent a lot of time there and that's important to me. My spouse is Jewish. It's very important to him. And I had read Ms. Marvel by G. Willow Wilson. Have you encountered that comic? I sure have. Yeah, it's really wonderful. Ms. Marvel, Kamala Khan is the first Muslim superhero. And it was such a wonderful new kind of hero that was also still your classic superhero. I thought as a writer, she navigated culture and heritage and identity and all the awesomeness and complexity and weirdness of becoming a superhero so brilliantly. And so, you know, that was some of my inspiration to think that I would like to take that part of my identity and the identity of my own kids and other kids I knew and kind of create a character who represented the activist, secular Jewish kiddos of New York City and the kind of community that they operate in and the concerns that they have. And if that wasn't enough, Wait, there's more because her superpower, which honestly, I, I couldn't believe because really this sounded like fantasies that I've had, you know, four in the morning quite often. Her superpower is communicating and being part basically dog. Yes. I end up writing a lot about dogs. They're so primal. Then they're so full of love. And they're the way that they're intelligent about their emotions and about their bodies is different from what people come to the table with. Yeah, way smarter than we are about these things. They are. I, uh, you know, there's a number of points where the dog says things like, you know, 
pat my belly. And she says, oh, you're shameless. And the dog says, that's a good way to be. Right. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So she basically gets attacked by Killer Croc and develops superpowers together with a Great Dane. So they have a kind of mind meld and Whistle, the hero, Willow Zimmerman, her alter ego is named Whistle, can talk to the dog, can also smell and hear the way that the dog can and has a super powered whistle, which can call an army of canine helpers to fight whatever battle she's engaged in. Jews and dogs, man, there's, there's really nothing else you could wish for. Uh, let me ask you this. Are you ready for the mayhem that is about to ensue as hordes of nerds demand your, your attention, explication, and kind of parse over every line in this, in this new entry in the DC Talmud that, that you've created? <laughs> I love nothing more than hordes of nerds analyzing texts. Uh, I don't take it personally. I was trained as a literary critic. I have a doctorate in English literature. I love to take things apart. So yeah, bring it on. And so the requisite question before we let you go, is there already talk about Whistle 2 and or Whistle the movie, the TV show, the, the cinematic universe? Where, where does this amazing franchise go from here? I am not sure where she's going, except it seems likely that she will go to Teen Titans Academy, which is a comic book that DC has. And so I think she might be edging her way towards the Teen Titans. I cannot confirm or deny anything, but that seems like a possible fun direction. I would be thrilled. Do you have control over this thing? Can you say, no, she absolutely should not go to the Academy. She needs to go fight some other villain in the universe. Do you maintain a sort of say in her destiny? I don't maintain a ton of say in her destiny. I, but I am the creator. So, you know, 70 years from now, my name will be on the movie. <laughs> when Gal Gadot's granddaughter plays Whistle <laughs> in, in, the, in the ninth remake of, uh, of the franchise. E. Lockhart, thank you so much for being our guest. Oh, it was a pleasure. Hey guys, I hope you'll give me 47 seconds of your time to talk about this book that is finally out. It's called Squirrel Hill, The Tree of Life Synagogue Shooting and the Soul of a Neighborhood. As you may remember, it began as a special episode of this podcast, Unorthodox, and then I realized there was a book in it and I began going to Squirrel Hill after the Tree of Life Synagogue shooting. Back in 2018, I went 32 times, I interviewed 250 people, and I wrote a book about hopefulness and resilience and grit and sadness, but also rising from sadness and rebounding from it. And it's about the Squirrel Hill neighborhood of Pittsburgh. And I really, really hope that you, more than anyone, I hope that you in the J Crew will buy it. But what I really hope is that I get to meet you and that you'll come to some of my talks and that we can discuss it. So if you go to markoppenheimer.com, you can not only find links to purchase it, but you can also see where I'm going to be speaking. October 5th, I'm going to be at the JCC in New Haven. October 10th, I'll be at the JCC in Seattle. In the weeks after that, I will be in LA, San Diego, South Hadley, Massachusetts at the Odyssey Bookstore. I'll be at the JCC of Manhattan. I'll be at Real Artways in Hartford, Connecticut, and on and on, everywhere from Fort Wayne, Indiana, to Pittsburgh, back to New York, Baltimore, Atlanta, Houston, Newton, Springfield, Massachusetts, my hometown, greater Philadelphia, and so forth and so on. And I'm still adding dates. So I'm very grateful to all the places that are keeping their doors open so that with masks and, and vaccination, good protocols, we can come together and meet and talk about this, this horrific tragedy. But look, if you can't make it to any of those events, um, I hope you will pick up 
a copy, please try to do it through an independent bookstore if you can. Going to bookshop.org supports the indies. Going to IndieBound supports the indies. Let's get the book into the hands of people who will help us remember. I'm very proud of it, and I hope that you will read it and tell me what you think. As ever, my email is moppenheimer at tabletmag.com. My website with all that info is markoppenheimer.com. And the book is Squirrel Hill, The Tree of Life Synagogue Shooting and the Soul of a Neighborhood. You can pre-order now, but it comes out October 5th. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. To the mailbox, Leo, what is our first letter? Thank you for sharing an audio featuring Dara Horn speaking on her latest book, People Love Dead Jews. By the way, <laughs> this is an aside because I'm friends with Dara. Like, it's amazing how many letters Dara receives and how many posts we receive on our website or on our Facebook page saying like, I can't believe that you put something called People Love Dead Jews. It's like, right. <laughs> did you read the book? <laughs> Then you stop to listen. So it's not uh, the pro letter murder of Jews. It's not pro dead Jews. <laughs> For the record, an Orthodox and Tablet magazine did not endorse dead Jews. <laughs> the murder. For Jews. years, every time my son and I would hear a story about concentration camp victims on NPR, <laughs> it's a subgenre apparently. I would say to my son, 
They only love dead Jews. Yep. I also added that the next report would be a negative feature story on Israel. Sure enough, I was proved right more often than not. My son would deride me and say I was too sarcastic. I now have proof that I am not alone. I have finally met my twin sister. Thank you, Dara. Signed, Deborah Isabel Margolin, Amherst, Massachusetts. Um, This is uh, an amazing reminder to everyone, not only to read Dara's amazing book, People Love Dead Jews, but to listen to her podcast, Companion, on this here Tablet Studios Network, Adventures with Dead Jews, which again is not an invitation <laughs> not we adore. to kill Jews. To be clear, Dara Horn really likes her Jews alive, if at all possible. <laughs> she endorses the ongoing vitality of Jews. <laughs> I listened to Adventures with Dead Jews in the shower this weekend. So uh, it was a real... <laughs> By the way, you know you know who was very disappointed with, with the show, who's looking forward to it and really was crushed by it, was uh, Fritz Bregren from the State <laughs> Department. <laughs> Department. He was like, finally a show for me. Oh, they love them alive. I wish we could get analytics on listeners to find out how <laughs> many, what percentage are listening for uh, hopeful content that it is not. Though, though Sam Hacker, I do have to say that for Fritz Bregring, the image of Jews with soap in the shower is, uh, is yeah. you know, that's, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Right in, that's right in his wheelhouse of- like, uh, I'm giving him everything he wants. Everything he wants is the, you know, the, when they hand you the bar of soap and say, you guys go to the left to the showers. That's that's right in his wheelhouse. I'm looking up the numbers on listeners in Austria right now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> there are going to be so many Sherpas for you when you move to Austria, Sam. Can I just say that Dara and I, when working on that show, have a running joke about merch and that beach towels and soap on a rope are the top two items. <laughs> right. How do you do merch for a podcast called People Love Dead Jews or Little Adventures of Dead stars. Jews? That's right. <laughs> you think I should oh. start a meetup group when we move to Austria? Oh, totally. Totally. You concentrate all the fans together in one place. <laughs> people who love people who love dead Jews. That'll look what it'll people, be. People who love People who love their Jews. Friends, it's a new year. The mailbox has been scrubbed clean and it's it's time to rebuild. It's time to restock. We need your thoughts, prayers, hopes, dreams, comments, criticisms. Call us, leave a voice message. Try to keep it under a minute, 914-570-4869 or email us unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Jonathan Lipnicki is best known for his roles as a child actor some years ago in films like Jerry Maguire and Stuart Little. But when I talked to him right before the high holidays, we talked about other stuff. We talked about martial arts. We talked about anti-Semitism. We talked about Instagram. He's a really, really shrewd cat who's doing interesting things with both his body and his mind. And it was a pleasure to talk with Jonathan Lipnicki. We are so pleased to have as our Jew of the Week, Jonathan Lipnicki. You know him from his roles, his essential roles in classic movies like Jerry Maguire and Stuart Little. I also know him fondly from a, a little arc he did on Dawson's Creek, one of my favorite shows of all time. It's like you were with me for every stage of my childhood, Johnny. So I really appreciate that. I, I owe you a big thank you. Oh, thank you. And I also want to say that I just watched the trailer for this movie that I think you recently wrapped called Pooling to Paradise, which looks Awesome. Is that going to get some distribution? Are people going to be able to see that? Yeah, it's out right now. It's on like uh, VOD and all that. Check it out. People should go watch the trailer. It's sort of when when Uber Pool goes wrong. But listen, 
You were recently on TMZ because you're using your martial arts training to save the world. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that project? One of my good friends that I do Shabbat dinners with, we saw that there was all these anti-Semitic attacks going on that were pretty much ignored by the media, that we wouldn't know about them if it weren't for Twitter or Instagram or, you know, different various social media platforms. My friend had this idea about, you know, making sure that people got to shul and from shul safely. And so we started doing it, walking people, standing outside the synagogues. And it's been an amazing experience, you know, also getting to talk to people who are visibly Jewish and seeing what they go through on a daily basis anti-Semitic incidents had gone up 500%. And that's reported. You got to remember that a lot of these people are very strong, pride, prideful people who don't report these incidents. Right. So you can only imagine how, how crazy it is. You know, even with my own eyes, seeing people come by and they're yelling at, at little kids who are 10 years old, calling them like terrorists and, you know, yelling various things. That they, you shouldn't have to go through that at that age. You shouldn't have to go through that ever. And anyone in this country should be really in the world, but in this country, especially where we where we promote freedom, people should be able to worship and do whatever they want without being treated like that or attacked or, you know, threatened. If there's something that I can do that's active and it's not just sitting on social media posting, then I want to do that. I have social media, but I don't, I don't know. I always feel helpless when I post something, but I feel empowered when I do something. That should go on a poster helpless when I post something, but empowered when I do something. I mean, it's it's worth saying that, you know, you have some self-defense training. You've done, what, 14 years worth of jujitsu? Is, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been doing Brazilian jujitsu around 14 years. I got my black belt right before the pandemic all went down. And uh, it's been a great journey. Uh, it's taught me a lot, really humbled me, and at the same time built confidence. And I, I think that more people should should do martial arts and they'd be better people. There's a lot of people who, who, if they got punched in the face, they'd be a lot nicer. You know, it's so interesting. The two men I know, and I'm sure this is true of women who do martial arts as well, but I'm thinking of two men I know who are the most youthful for their age. These are two men. One of them is pushing 50 and he looks about 30. One's pushing 65 or 70 and looks like 40, are both martial artists. I have wondered if it has given them a kind of inner serenity or confidence. I mean, my my pet theory is they just don't have worry lines. They seem not to be wrinkling up their face in concern or worry as if they encounter the world with this kind of serenity. It's only a sample size of two, so maybe I'm just completely full of it. But it does seem that the martial arts for them is a spiritual practice as much as it is a physical practice. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely agree with that. I think that um, for me, suffering with anxiety from a young age, Things that would make me feel better would be things where I have to be in the moment. You very much have to be in the moment. With Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you have to, it's chess with your body. You're thinking a lot. And I think it's made me a better problem solver and a better critical thinker, actually. So I was going to ask about that because you said, you've said something in the media about how the practice of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has helped you not only physically, obviously, but also emotionally. And you just said something about anxiety. I want you to take me back 14 years ago. You're what? You were, you're a high schooler, you know, number one at the time. Tell me more about your anxiety. What were you trying to get under control? What were you trying to tackle with, with martial arts? And number two, with so many different martial arts practices out there, how do you pick one? How do you settle on a gym and decide, okay, this is my move. I'm all in for this particular martial art. For me, I just had irrational fears. I don't know why it happened. I think that there's a lot of pressure, yes, being an actor and whatnot at a young age, but I think that I would have had anxiety anyway, honestly. My parents have it. I think it's just something that was just genetic, I guess. I chose jujitsu because it's about overcoming like disadvantages. Someone could be more athletic and bigger and you can still beat them using leverage and technique. And I thought that was really important. Have you ever had to use it? <laughs> 
No comment. All right. Well, I hope if you have, I hope it was on some serious anti-Semite. It's more of a funny story than it is like, a, you know, it wasn't very serious. Oh, bring it. No, nah, it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a three drink story. I got you. You know, LA, Jewish life comes in so many flavors out there. You know, it's like you've got a scene in Beverly Hills. You've got a scene where the Persians live. You've got the valley. You've got like Orthodox. You've got reform. You've got the hippies on the beach doing their thing in Malibu. What, what was your Jewish upbringing like? I am, I guess you still call it the valley. I was in a... Westlake Village growing up, I guess it's an extension of the valley. I mean, it's still 818. Uh-huh. But it's weird because it's like, I feel like if we say we're the valley, valley people are like, you're not the valley, you're Westlake Village. <laughs> and then if you say you're Ventura County, Ventura County people are like, you're technically over the line where you live, you're LA County. So yeah, so suburban reform. I went to a Dot Elohim in Thousand Oaks. I went to Etz Chaim for preschool. But a Dot Elohim is where I got bar mitzvahed. Very culturally Jewish upbringing. You know, it's been a huge part of my identity growing up. And I think that there's that's such an interesting thing. And it's part of the thing that kind of uh, frustrates me with with the entertainment industry and something I hope to change is they only show like certain types of Judaism. You know, it's very stereotypical. And it's like, oh, my neuroses, you know, like give me a bagel. Like it's so bad for for an industry that has a lot of Jews in it. We sure show like one type of Jew. And there's so many like Jews that go against that stereotype, athletic, you know, not meek who do martial arts. Like there's so many things that go against that stereotype that I really like to show. And I'm working on it on a future project. So we'll show different types of that. What's the future project? I can't talk about it yet, but I'm just letting you know it's coming. You're one of the first people I'm telling. All right. That's 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 such a tease. It's like you're one of the first people I'm yeah. telling, but I'm not telling you. You know, I'd like to show that. I don't think that they they show that enough. I'm going to disagree with you only a little bit. I think they show two kinds of Jews, right? They show secular, meek, the caricature that hasn't changed since Woody Allen. Then they show Hasidic Jews. They show black hatters when they want a punchline. And what they never show is anything in between. There's like never like a reformed Jewish girl playing high school basketball, but then like doing a Shabbat dinner. The one show that did that, that had just reform or conservative Jewish ritual without making a big deal out of it was Transparent, which actually had people like having a Seder and went to a reform or conservative synagogue. And like they were actual shulgoers. And it wasn't a big deal. It was just like natural for them. But you are totally right that otherwise it's like just these these crazy extreme stereotypes that don't reflect who most of us are. Yeah, I mean, I've been told I wasn't Jewish enough for things I've read for, for acting. That's insane. You know, like I don't look stereotypically Jewish enough and I'm like Jewish all the way back. You know, <laughs> I'm just Polish. So I look like a blonde, you know, right. <laughs> little, little, I played a white supremacist before I ever played a Jew. In, in Hollywood. Wait, you've played a white supremacist? What was that in? Yeah, I did. It was um, called the LA Riot Spectacular. It was a um, independent film with Snoop Dogg. And it premiered at Tribeca. I played a white supremacist. And that was like the year, the year I was studying for my bar mitzvah. And I had to explain that to my grandfather, rest in peace. He was an Auschwitz survivor. And I had to explain to him that I was playing a white supremacist, but it's a comedy, grandpa. It's a comedy. <laughs> And uh, he was like, oh, comedy, Snoop Dogg? Okay. <laughs> right, I was going to say, did you have to explain to him who Snoop Dogg was or did he know that? No, he knew who Snoop Dogg was. He was he thought <laughs> Snoop Dogg was funny. Okay, so tell us with the jujitsu, you're kind of doing shomrim. You're guarding people who are trying to go to and from shul. Number one, do you pick particular corners or intersections where people might need a little, you know, a little muscle? And number two... Do you somehow represent as like, look, I'm strong. I'm, I'm a, are you guarding them by virtue of being a young, vigorous person showing up? Or are you telling them, look, if need be, if something goes down, I will, I can really get your back. About geographically where we go, we go, you know, definitely like we, we have a, a focus in that Fairfax district area, but we have had groups extend to Boca Raton for some time, Manhattan and Brooklyn. I don't know if those ones are still going strong. 
But we initially, when this started happening, we had several cities reach out and I hope more do to organize that. But um, as far as like, I don't know, I don't really like put a like, oh, I'm there because I'm young and vigorous. I'm there. I talk to people. There's particular people we have, you know, pickups with who will make sure they get home. I think there's safety in um, showing up because you got to realize with anti-Semitic people or people who are promoting any type of hatred, these aren't the bravest part of the population by any means. Right. So like you have people physically there. That's like a big deterrent to a lot of cowardly people. They want to pick on people when it's like kids with their moms. But if you see some dudes rolling up, you're not, you know, I've seen it firsthand where the, you know, we used to stand there, people would roll by, they'd yell things, threaten things. And then when they were started realizing that there were a bunch of guys there, they would come by and they'd roll down the little, the window a little bit, see us and boom, window up and take off. One of the last times there was this guy who was just sitting through green lights, tailing an old Orthodox man walking. He's tailing him in his car. And I'm like, what is this? It's so weird. And he sits through on a busy street, two green lights. So I'm like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm going to go walk behind this guy. So I start walking behind this guy. I eye the guy in the car. He eyes me and he just still sits there. Then my friend walks by. He sees him. My friend Remy, he sees him. He kind of like looks down a little. Then we have one giant dude. (laughs) walks by, he sees him, looks at him, sits for a little longer, looks back at the the Orthodox guy, like, is it worth it? No, takes off. But like, what would that guy have done if we weren't there? Like, was he just going to follow this guy home? Like, what was he doing? You know, it was so weird. And there's certain things you see that really like hit something in you. You're like, this is, something's off here. And that happens all the time. I mean, we had a little boy get punched in the face by a grown man on a weekday when we weren't there. And luckily, Maganam, who is a um, private security company, they put a citizen's arrest on the guy. But like this little boy, you know, got punched in the face. Another one got dried by paintball during Shabbat. These things happen and they're so weird. So then we posted about the little boy getting punched in the face and um, it got scrubbed from Instagram completely. Made me really angry. And I think that, yeah, there's some filters or whatever that try to filter out hate and they're saying they're doing the best they can on Instagram, but that's kind of bullshit because- Everything that happens to be Jewish gets scrubbed completely on social media, especially Instagram. And they like should be really ashamed of themselves. There's um, a lot of Jewish activists who have posted about it. Their stuff gets scrubbed. When directly asked about it, Instagram has never addressed it by calling it anti-Semitism. They're like, well, all and every hate speech. It's a tricky thing for them. They circumnavigate around around that question. And, you know, we'll see. Maybe, maybe after this airs, I'll have my Instagram right. deleted by them. But it's true. And they should answer to that. Because if you're going to be against hate, be against all types of hate. Or you're against no, no types of hate. Do you get any pushback in the industry for being an out Jew? Are there people who, who think that's not cool? I wouldn't say that they said anything to me directly. But I would say that I have several friends who are activists who never interact with my posts about Jewish stuff. They'll interact with every other cause in the world, everything, no matter how big, no matter how small, not mine, you know? And I just notice it. I don't call people out on it. I take note because you know what? You can't convince people because they have their own narrative. But what you can do is take note of these people who, who do that. And it's overwhelming. Nobody wants to have that conversation with me. Nobody. Yeah, but you know, there's a lot going on or it's complicated or it's that it's not the right time. When is it the right time then? Because I think every time is the right time to fight all types of hate. For instance, I saw one, one person I know, big following, big, big following. They backed down from putting the, the blue square that was stop anti-Semitic hate, stop anti-Semitism. 
That's not anything political. That's not anything even, you know, Israel related. And they bowed down to a bunch of people who were like fans of their show who are 12, who <laughs> were like, you're saying that this is that. And, you know, this is and they were conflating that with the conflict in the Middle East. But it was just supposed to be stop anti-Semitism. And this girl deleted it and folded. But if you were to say that about, you know, any other type of thing she was promoting, she'd be like, no, if you're racist, like unfollow me. But like, no, when it came to Jews, this person folded under public pressure. And I've seen that so common where it's like, oh, well, like, I don't know. I didn't really know. I'm sorry. Don't be sorry. Stand up against hate. And that I noted. And, you know, when the right time comes, I, I might speak to that person about it. But they have a large enough following where that's disgusting. You don't fold to people over the simple blue square, which means just stop hate. Right. No, these are people who will be strong for abused puppies, as I am, but they won't be strong for, you know, Jews. You, you know, it's easy to yell like something to a bunch of people that agree with you. What's really hard when it really hard, is hard to be an activist is when maybe not everyone agrees with you. And that's where these people stop their, their fake. I'm an actor activist. I'm an actress activist, whatever. They stop that when it becomes not the most popular thing. And that's disgusting. You got to fight against everything. But that's the business you're in too, is, I mean, you all have to be thinking all the time about your brand, about your popularity, about your marketability. I imagine that would just create endless anxiety. It does. I mean, it, yeah, it is. At the end of the day, it was like, I didn't want to post about what I was doing with the Shabbat walks, not because of hate, because I mean, whatever, screw those people, but because of the fact that I didn't want attention for something I did that was a good deed. And what changed my mind was Instagram endlessly scrubbing this stuff. I became angry and I went, you know what? If I have a platform, what am I going to use it for if I'm not using it for something good? Because I didn't want attention. I didn't want to. I'm not a person who wants attention for things I do. I just wanted to do the right thing. But then when I realized the right thing was, you know, fighting against huge, huge public platforms that are, that are silencing my people. Right. Then I realized, you know what? It's justified if I post about it. No, you know, I, I'm not on social media anymore, but I get the sense from what I understand that just posting like, you know, Emmanuel Shriki was talking to us, you know, from Entourage. And she was saying yeah. that like, she would just post Shabbat Shalom on a Friday evening. And it struck me that even that today is a political act, right? There are going to be people who are, who see that as, what is this proud Judaism on Instagram? You know, and then, then are skeptical. And it's really sad. I mean, it's really, really sad. It's sad that people don't have the critical thinking to realize that like one thing shouldn't be conflated with another. Because you have a problem with something else happening in some part of the world doesn't mean that Jews shouldn't be able to say Shabbat Shalom. So I started rapping to Tefillin and I started taking pictures of that online because like, you know what? <laughs> like, come at me, bro. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. like, what do you, you know what? It's really fun is what you can do is you could also filter like hate words. So these people are just screaming into the, in the ether and I don't even see them. I don't even see them. And you know what? The people have DM me, like someone DM me that they were going to come spit on me in front of La Brea. Like, come try it. Like, you know, like see what happens, <laughs> you know, like, like that is not scary to me. And you know what? It's just, it's stupid. It's, it's Bring so it. it comes down to stupidity um, at the end of the day. But if, if the worst threat you're going to have is to spit in front of me, like, okay. The only question I have left is, you know, where does one use the infinite puns with jujitsu? Does one meme it? Does one Instagram it? Does one poster it? There are t-shirts. There's a, a Jewish MMA fighter who has jujitsu t-shirts, Natan Levy. 
very good fighter. He has jujitsu shirts. I think they're great. That's awesome. So if people want to learn, I understand you're not, you're, you're not doing this for the publicity. In fact, it was going on for a while before we heard about it. But if people wanted to learn more about the, the Shabbos walks that you're doing to guard people, is there any sort of hashtag or website or anything that where people can look for it? We're working on the website, but for now it's like, you can follow me on Instagram or Remington Franklin. Who's your buddy who started with you, right? Yeah. And he talks about it a lot. And he's, a, if you want to get involved, he's a good person to DM. And he'll try to set it up, especially if anyone's listening and they want to start something like this in their own city. I think it's really important. I mean, it's been an awesome experience. And I think like all jokes aside and me and Mike, you know, come at me, bro. There's a lot of safety in numbers. There's a lot of safety in being a physical deterrent. Obviously, bad things can happen. And it is scary. I know I come off like sometimes like, you know, oh, like laughing. But it's a serious matter. And I think that the best thing we can do is look out for each other. Hey, if another community reached out to us that wasn't a Jewish community and wanted us to do the same thing, we would too. We would too. Or any communities who want to know how we organized it, reach out. This is important. And like I said, if you don't stand against all types of hate, you don't stand against any. You got to stand against any hatred in the world. All right. So Shabbos Walks, the new movie is Pulling to Paradise. You've got a lot going on. Johnny Lipnicki, Shana Tova to you. Shana Tova to you. Thank you for having me. Mazel tovs. I know that one of the things our longtime fans dream most of is giving the Mazel Tov on our show. Uh, Sam Hacker, here you are. Do you want to lead off the Mazel Tovs? I would love to give a Mazel Tov to my friends, Josh and Agni, who are getting married this weekend in Garrison, New York. I don't mean to rain on the parade of your Mazel Tov, but what kind of name is Agni? I was just about to ask. Who's Agni? She's Lithuanian, not Jewish. But then Josh Rosenberg. So, you know, Jew. Kind of name is Rosenberg. Uh, Leo, have you a Mazel Tov or three? Oh, I, I have a Mazel Tov. Uh, it is to... Big time fan of the show and friend to us all, Stevie Cohen, the multi-billionaire who last year did exactly what I would do if I had two billion lying around. He bought the New York Mets. And if you're following sports at all, you know that we've had yet another unbelievable sort of world historical spectacular collapse, losing, I think, something like 23 of the last 29 games. And so once again, Stevie, this is this is what you bought. Thank you for playing. And now please, please fix this. <laughs> <laughs> breaking my heart. Leo Leibowitz, the master of the passive-aggressive shiv in the side, Mazel Tov. No, I, I mean this because look, I, he seems serious. He's spending the money. He seems engaged. He seems into it. This is exactly the kind of spirit that I would like to see a, an owner take to a, a sports franchise. And, and I want to see stuff happen. You know, I want to see growth. And, and yes, Amen. I will be the manager if you insist. <laughs> <laughs> will you will you pull a Ricky Henderson and be a manager slash pinch runner? Oh my God. I would I would just, <laughs> I'll do anything. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh and I'll, you know, I'll close it out. I got some some happy time Mazel Tovs. A Mazel Tov to our former guest, Governor Jared Polis of Colorado, who married his longtime partner, apparently on Era of Yom Kippur. So like at Kol Nidre. I'm not sure. Well, we'll that, send that by the way, saves on the on the wedding receptions. Like, <laughs> and we're married, and now I'm sorry, we can't. <laughs> I can't really serve you any refreshments. I, I hope readers will just, I'm just going to let that stand and I hope the J. Crew will write in to correct me if that's not actually true. And also like he has, he's Jewy and he has Jewish relatives. Was he just, I mean, what if mom wanted to come but also kind of had a place to be? Like, sure, I don't know. The ultimate power move. It's all different in the mountain time zone. And uh, Bashaa Tovat, a friend of the show, Molly Ye, longtime listener and partner in so many ventures with us. She announced that she's expecting baby number two and she did it by posting a picture on various social media 
channels of babka that she thought looked kind of like a sonogram and her listeners got it. And finally, a belated mazel tov to listener Amanda reichenbach Lehman and her son Noah, who mikvahized, who got dunked, who converted to Judaism, who came home to Judaism a few weeks ago. So mazel tov Miriam, Bat Avraham Vesora, and your entire mishpacha. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Subscribe to our newsletter or send us your thoughts, unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Or call us, leave your thoughts on our voicemail, 914-570-4869. Guys, we're talking live shows again. We have some interest. We're probably going to go out on the road this year. Book us, or you could advertise with us, or just generally collaborate with us. Email producer Josh Cross, that's Cross with a K, at jcross at tabletmag.com. To buy the swag, which you're going to wear outside as you slowly re-enter the world, go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt. You can buy shirts, mugs, onesies, etc. Follow us on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast, on Twitter at Unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sar Febman Ader. Our associate producers, Robert Scaramucci. Our artwork by Esther Werdiger. Theme music by Golem. They're online at golemrocks.com. And I once saw them play a wedding. It was the wedding of my friend Aaron Matz and his spouse, Elaine Blair. And it was a rockin' wedding. Golem was the band, so they do a lot of things. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Our sukkah builder is Sandy White-Fried. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Ora Ahuvia of Congregation Sheer Tikva in Troy, Michigan. We come to you from the scattered home studios deep in the bunkers of our basements, below the level below the level below the level of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. Producer Josh. It's producer Josh Cross. Producer Josh. Huh. Producer Josh Cross, yeah, yes, you're motioning wildly. What do you have to say? Oh, I see on my Zoom screen, Producer Josh Cross, Producer Josh, motioning wildly, gesticulating wildly. What does he have to say? Oh, and now Producer Sarah, what do you have to add?